SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, Eric Henry and Joe Lonergan here with you once again. Have a pretty hefty uh, run of show to get through here between last week's slate and next week's slate. And uh, more news and notes about the shifting destiny of CUSA would seem. Uh, but Eric, before we get into that, how was your Halloween? Any Any incidents to report? No incidents to report because my Halloween was spent in Huntington, West Virginia. <laughs> so, uh, which I guess by saying it that way, you would you know think that there were some incidents to report, but none at all. I was still on the road covering the FIU game. So the only incident I had was being inside of a hotel. Well, actually, no, no, I take that back. Quickly, Joe, I will bless the listeners with this story. Not quite on Halloween, but you know this, the listeners may not. I had, a, and we won't name the hotel chain. We don't want to slander anybody, but I had a unwanted guest inside of my hotel room at 2.45 in the morning due to a operator error, I guess. The overnight night auditor said that my room was marked, accidentally marked vacant, and they gave a copy of my room or a key to my room to someone checking in that night. And you can only imagine, Joe, people who are checking into a hotel room at 2.45 in the evening uh, <laughs> or 2.45 in the morning. Uh, you can imagine what they're checking in for. And someone walked directly into my room. And yes, I've been told it was my fault for not engaging the, the safety lock or, you know, the other things. And that I'm willing to take the blame there. But still, that was the only incident. So I'll let you make of that what you want. Listen, if someone comes in my room at 2.45 in the morning, safety lock or not, and they don't have... Taco Bell or Waffle House or some other late night eatery, a, a carryout bag of that on their person, like fists are being thrown. I don't care what the context is. So like if anybody tells you that's your fault, they're bananas. So they, it was just a clerical error. Like they just gave somebody else your room key. Well, was so it? essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. And first of all, I'm with you. Like fists, you know, that was going to be what happened until the person turned the light and realized, oh, this room is not vacant. But yeah, essentially, I was told that whoever checked me into the room didn't mark the room as occupied. So when they went to see which rooms are available at 2.45 in the morning, the day before a home game at Marshall's, so you can imagine the hotels, they are pretty packed. It's like, oh, this one's vacant. Might be the only one. Let's give them a key. And it was not vacant. So there's that. But I did get chastised on Twitter for not having the safety lock. So uh, take that for what it's worth. I mean, I guess, but also like, that's the hotel's fault. And it could have been the West Virginia Mothman, for all we know. Listen, I'm with you. That's my point. But I'm just saying. Listen, all's well that ends well, but it could have been anybody. So I'm with you. I mean, you could have been attacked by a pet monkey, for all we know, or some other kind of crazy uh, <laughs> exotic pet that apparently college football people have now, as we learned in, uh, in uh, Texas uh, uh, this week. A pet monkey, Joe? You don't say. That's a great transition. That's why you're a pro. <laughs> sure i'm glad one person is willing to admit it yeah i mean <laughs> we we won't spend too much time on it uh but since it's not really tied into cusa but uh by now if you haven't heard about it on uh the c uh, on the college football rather twitter sphere university of texas uh special teams coach uh <laughs> 
Hurts. This is so <laughs> weird. Uh, University of Texas special teams coach uh, Jeff Banks has a pet monkey uh, that apparently belonged to his uh, girlfriend who was an ex-stripper uh, exotic dancer, better known as uh, Pole Assassin. Um, yeah, apparently uh, a kid got too close and uh, the monkey reacted in bitter. <laughs> so that is, that's just, that's the wildest thing I've heard in a long time. And uh, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> Texas in the news for plenty of positive things with the Jeff Trailer extension that we'll get to. But, uh, you know, wouldn't be Halloween without uh, some weird animal doing something weird in the South, as uh, as has been the yearly tradition, it would seem like. Listen, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but I do have to ask, Joe, what is the most bizarre part of that story from your end of things? Because obviously, as someone who is a resident of Tampa, Florida, I'm not going to shame strippers. I have the, the stripper part of this story seems to be getting a, a lot of attention in a way that I can't understand. Seems how Tampa is known for being the strip club capital of the United States. But is it the emotional support monkey, the biting, or pole assassin? Out of those three, which one really gets you? I mean, pole assassin is just a brave choice for a name. Uh, so that's definitely one of the interesting parts here. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just the whole having a pet monkey thing. Like, did we learn nothing from Tiger King? Did did Joe Exotic get incarcerated in vain for us to learn nothing? Joe, I mean, I'm allowed to slander Tampa, but you just had to bring up that part of the story again, man. Like, I, I'm not doing much. What, Tiger King? Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I mean... I don't know. That, that's a topic Joe for Daddy, another time. Carol Baskin, it, it just all, it all tend, blends together, right? But I agree with you. The, the pet monkey probably is. I Listen, I'm not going to blame a pet monkey because pet monkey is going to do what they do when they feel attacked. It's the fact that you have the emotional support monkey. So there's that. <laughs> exactly. Emotional support monkey. <laughs> I don't know. That's an AIM username if I've ever heard one. So I'm going to have to go back and use that one. <laughs> but before before this devolves into us debating the innocence of Carol Basket or not, which who knows how long that conversation would be, uh, we do have football to talk about at some point. Uh, let's start off the recap of last week with uh, some talk about Western Kentucky beating Charlotte 45-13. to Chris Reynolds did not play in this game due to a hand injury that he apparently suffered in the FAU game. Uh, James Foster played in his place, and as a result, 49ers had their worst passing game of the year. A uh, lot of inexperience playing in this game for Charlotte with uh, four first-time starters and eight players who did not start in the previous game. Uh, and for Western Kentucky, they are still in contention for the East now at 4-4, four and four, as are Charlotte. And quickly moving up the record books for them, Jareth Stearns only needs six more touchdowns and 600 more yards to have the best receiving season in the history of Western Kentucky football. And at the pace he's going, I don't doubt that he'll hit that soon. Yeah, Joe, when looking at this one, first off, you talk about James Foster getting his first start. And this obviously isn't the way that you would have wanted that to go. And maybe because I will take it on the chin here as someone who last episode was talking about maybe what Chris Reynolds ceiling is and maybe James Foster or, you know, him being a former four star quarterback, someone who clearly has the physical talents, maybe thinking that he can get more out of this offense. Well, again, don't want to crush a kid in his first start, but the, the numbers show. Uh, why maybe Chris Reynolds be able to hold on to this job, especially through uh, out the quarterback competition when he came in and why Reynolds was very quickly named the starter by Will Healy. Nevertheless, got to give credit to Bailey Zappi in Western Kentucky. Another phenomenal performance, 33 of 46 for 393, the four touchdowns. Really, Joe, I think the thing that I am impressed by, first off, is just 
Zappi's efficiency. Having had a chance to see him live, there is nothing about him in my mind that's gimmicky. You know, you take a look at maybe previous air raid quarterbacks and you think, all right, that's just a guy you plug and play, right? But I really think Zappi is really the, the person who really engineers the success of this offense. But something else I was going to say that I think has to impress you as our resident Western Kentucky person is the success of the run game, right? Now, 21 carries for 76 yards, not necessarily going to impress you per se, but this is all in my mind that Western Kentucky needed from the run game. 10 carries from 60, excuse me, 10 carries for 66 yards from Noah Whittington. Six yards per pop, six yards per, per carry, one touchdown, right? Joe, it's not a matter of, you know, this running 20 or 25 times in the air raid. It's a matter of, can you get five or six when you need them? And then can you at least keep the defense honest when, you know, you have a running back in there and they at least appear capable of gaining yards, right? Adam Cofield had a 10-yard rush. No, Whittington, one of his long, uh, one of his, uh, his longest carry was 22 yards. So it's just the ability to keep the, the opposing defense honest that I think you're really looking for out of that air raid offense. So definitely have to really appreciate the fact that West Kentucky really hitting their stride here. And as I mentioned, I know we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Even though the one and four start was disappointing, Western really is still in control of their own destiny. And, and like I said a couple of weeks ago, the East really could come down. Uh, East that's jam-packed with five teams within one game of each other. The division really could have come down to, again, FAU's talent versus Bailey Zappi's arm. Yeah, I wrote a little bit about both of those things that you mentioned uh, earlier in uh, the week on on, a, on UDD. But um, first of all, like you mentioned, it's not about necessarily being able to dominate all the time with the run game. It's about making the opposing defense respect it and know that you have it you know, in, in your bag of tricks when you need it. And based on the way that they performed against Charlotte this week, it seems like it's getting there. You know, I'm not going to say that it's all the way there because again, Charlotte has the second worst run defense in CUSA right now. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but they're definitely getting better and they've been steadily improving in most aspects of their game over the course of the last five, six weeks. And I, I wrote about this in that article that I mentioned as well. Maybe it was a good thing that they preloaded their schedule with all their, you know, really hard opponents, because now it seems like they're just picking up that momentum at the right time. You know, not that, you know, every game doesn't matter in college football because it absolutely does. But when you're in a scenario that the vast majority of the G5 is in that, Above all, you just want to be in contention to compete for a conference championship and play in that conference championship game at the end of the year. Western Kentucky's doing that. So they're getting it done in, in the ways that they need to, but definitely have some ways to go. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned they have ways to go. But again, if you're a Tops fan, like you talked about, the opportunity is still there for them to really contend in the East. So maybe that five game stretch, I guess, you know, it's a glass half full because maybe that five game stretch there are the, the one and four start. You look at it and you, they lost, what, two of those games by one score, and you kind of wish they'd turn in your favor. But they may have really prepped Western Kentucky for the meet of their CUSA schedule. For sure, and with how competitive this East Division is looking with the last four or five weeks of the season, uh, excited to see how, you know, like you mentioned, Zappy stacks up against FAU and the rest of the competition there. Uh, let's shift over to the West now with North Texas beating Rice 30-24 to in overtime. Uh, Eric, you know, after Rice beat UAB, I think a lot of us were maybe hoping to see some more continued improvement from the Owls in this game. And we really didn't get it, especially considering how 
bad North Texas defense has been over the majority of this season. Uh, North Texas never trailed in this game, uh, despite how close it was at the end. And I will give credit to North Texas's defense, though, in this game, who had some critical stops late in the contest. Dion Noville had a career high with 10 tackles. And KD Davis had 18 tackles, which is the most for a mean green player since at least the year 2000. So, you know, not all that impressive in the scheme of everything we saw this weekend, but a pretty historic day for North Texas, really. Yeah, listen, Joe, I don't necessarily know that I see it the same way you do, because when I look at Jake Constantine, I'm impressed that they, again, got a passer who's able to, you know, he's the only one who's really been able to show any real success. And, of course, Wiley Green got knocked out of this game pretty early, which allowed Jake Constantine to, to take over, go 16-30 for 242, the two touchdowns. What really hurt Rice in this game was the fact that they couldn't get consistent running. Kalen Griffin and Jordan Myers combined for 25 carries for 79 yards, and Ari Broussard, 11 carries for 18 yards. That's a byproduct of, as you mentioned, Katie Davis with the 18 tackles. And, of course, when you got big Dion Noville in the middle, 10 tackles, half a sack, half a tackle for loss, and, of course, you know had a pass knockdown and rushed a passer as well. That's really the difference in this game. And, Joe, when you look at it, right – it's really, in my mind, and I'm not trying to be too critical of Rice, but when you look at a defense that you would expect to be able to make plays, right, you would think it's going to be Rice's in comparison to North Texas's. And it's not so that they didn't make plays, but when you have a game that goes to overtime, as you mentioned, you have trails in this game. All it is is just getting that turnover here or there. And the fact of the matter is they didn't weren't the Rice defense wasn't able to force any turnovers. And when you a game that's this tight, it really comes down to things like this. So I personally was impressed with the Rice offense. Jake Bailey with the 10 catches for 143 yards and Jordan Myers, really one of the most versatile players in all the conference USA, man, you know, three catches for 88 yards. So one week is capable of having a hundred yard game as a receiver. Another week is capable of having a hundred yard day as a rusher. But uh, as you mentioned, it just really was a matter of for North Texas, their defense showed up when it mattered and their offense just made enough plays. Cause when you look at the, the stats, especially the passing stats from North Texas, nothing's going to wow you, but they got the win. Back on the Rice side, I'm really trying to to find a note here, and I'm not having much success. Do we know the extent of Wiley Green's injury that he suffered this week? I haven't seen anything as far as how bad the injury is. I do know that Jake Constantine was named a starter for the game come this week, so that's about it. Okay. Like you mentioned, he definitely seems to have uh, you know more deep threat capabilities and just a stronger arm than Wiley Green. But based on how Wiley Green played in that UAB game, I kind of hope they get him back. I mean, you know, obviously it's they don't have very many games left, and if they want to make it to bowl eligibility, I think they need to win two. So that would definitely make things easier if they had the guy who has proven he can win against the you know top seeded team in COSA. So. Well, sure. No, I mean, that's a fair point. Wiley Green had a hell of a game with the three touchdown passes. But again, I mean, you also can't necessarily slight Constantine as well. And that really prior to the UAB game, he was the only one who showed in any real semblance of being able to pass. So in fact, he's able to do it two weeks in a row or excuse me, two games uh, this year. We'll see what happens. But I think that's a fair point um, on, on your part as far as getting Wiley Green back. Then we will move uh, to the game that you were attending this weekend, Eric, in Huntington, West Virginia, Marshall blanking FIU 38-0. to zero. Uh, I'm going to let you have the majority of the time here, but I want to say this about Marshall. Statistically, they have the best pass defense in the league and the worst run defense in the league in terms of yardage and scoring. 
So if they're going to win the East, they need to clean that up this week, especially with a contest against FAU looming. Wow, you kind of caught me off guard there. The fact that I I don't know why I thought that maybe some, you know, like the Charlottes and Western Kentuckys have improved a little bit because I didn't realize that Marshall was the worst in run defense in CUSA. I knew they were, I thought they were 12th. And you could be, I'm not questioning you. It just caught me off guard with the fact that they're now worse. It's one of those things, Joe, right, where uh, why pass when you can run? So maybe that attributes some of the Marshall secondary success. However, not necessarily in this game. They were able to stifle FIE. Was it a situation, Joe, where Charles Huff came out and they looked to pass a little bit early on in a game where anyone who's been to Huntington, West Virginia this time of year, you know, as Coach Huff termed it in his postgame, Huntington weather. It was 52 degrees at kickoff, overcast, a little bit of a drizzle. It rained uh, on and off throughout the game. So when he came out and tried to establish a pass early, that was kind of iffy. You look at the passing numbers there, Grant Wells, 20 to 25 for 184. Nothing's going to wow you there. But very clearly into the second quarter, which was a 21-point second quarter for Marshall, Coach Huff realized we're just going to run the football. And FIU obviously has their – they've had their deficiencies defending the run. And Rashina Lee, 26 carries for 133 yards, two touchdowns. I believe he's leading the nation in rushing touchdowns with 17. And then you combo that with Sheldon Evans, who had nine carries for 70 yards. This one really got out of hand early. The 24-point deficit for FIU in a year that has seen them at 1-7. and seven. They've taken their fair share of tough losses. 24 points was their largest deficit at the half. Joe, really a play that's almost summed up, if not just this game, the entire year for FIU. Heading into the end of the second quarter, you know, about halftime there, FIU looking to kick a field goal. And the attempt, the first attempt with about seven seconds left in the in the half was blocked by Marshall, but Charles Huff called timeout to try to ice the kicker. The next attempt was also blocked. So to have two kicks blocked back to back just kind of sums up the year for FIU. And really, you know, I'll close it with this and we'll see, you know, I, I wanted to ask Butch Davis his thoughts about it post game. He uh, declined to do media. Um, he said, you know, Eric, I'll talk to you on Tuesday. So obviously a, a tough, um, a tough loss for FIU and Coach Davis didn't, you know, really uh, didn't really see the need or feel the need to talk about it post game. But one of the things I want to ask him about, Joe, was up 38-0. And listen, I am not a run up the score person. I think if as long as you're playing football, you try to stop them, right? I'm not the person who thinks there's a such thing as running up the score. I think if you're playing football, everyone's out there and they deserve a chance to, you know, make plays, right? But up 38-0, Marshall gets the ball back after a turnover on downs. 17 seconds left in the game, and the final three plays of the game were not victory formation. They were runs. I assume they were passes. Uh, so that just goes to show you that, you know, Coach Huff definitely looking to, uh, you know, pour it on at the end of the game. Like I said, would have wanted to ask Butch Davis about that post game, but uh, as I said, he declined the opportunity to talk. So uh, I think that's just a byproduct of a really tough year for FIU and, you know, obviously some, uh, some changes maybe looming in the offseason. But for Marshall, Again, that puts them at five and three, really hitting their stride, having won a few games in a row here, and they're in prime position taking on FAU, which we'll talk about in the uh, you know recapping next week or previewing next week to make a push for another East Division title. Yeah, you know, with Marshall uh, to confirm their uh, their stats uh, in terms of run defense, uh, it's not a big margin by which they are the worst, but it it is noticeable. Uh, total rushing yards given up by them. Uh, 1,661 uh, yards given up by the 13th place team in Charlotte, 1,624. 
Uh, so a small margin, but it's definitely there. And I, I should correct myself. They they haven't given up the most rushing touchdowns uh, so far. That that belongs to uh, Rice, which is uh, a significant margin with 24. Uh, Marshall's only given up 12. Um, but now that I've made that that correction, um, I yeah, I, I, I think I'm in your camp of thinking in terms of running up the score there, Eric. I think just the way that college football is set up now and it's – it's a combination of, you know, coaches and playoff selection committee and BCS committee people's faults. You get recognition and respect in terms of, you know, the national scale of things by putting up a lot of points. And especially against your divisional opponents, you you need to make those statements, unfortunately. It's not something that I'm happy is a part of our game now, but it is. So I, I don't fault Coach Huff for doing what he did in that situation there. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. With all of the frustrating off-the-field things going on with FIU right now, you'd like to see this team be able to perform a little bit better, but I, I certainly don't blame them for not necessarily being in the best head, head space, and that includes Coach Davis. Uh, but Eric, you know, that has to feel somewhat good on your end to, for Coach Davis to, you know, address you by by name. But I know you're typically one of the only – uh, FIU beat writers who usually travel to these games. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, after covering FIU for four years, I, I would hope at this point, you know, Butch uh, uh, would be able to address my name. And also, I'm one of two people who covers FIU. Walter Villa from the Miami Herald is the other, and I'm the only one who travels. So uh, Butch Davis and I have spent a fair amount of time together on the road after wins and losses uh, over the past four years. So. <laughs> It has to feel good that you also got, uh, what was it, like 15 plates of Bob Evans all to yourself? Uh, okay, Joe. So, again, I, we don't want to veer too far off things, but this is what we do on this podcast, right? <laughs> I would, and I'll probably try to link this somehow. You know, maybe I'll retweet it. If you take a look at the picture that I, I took post game outside of the visiting locker room, and this is what, you know, teams do, they have meals for players post game. There were probably, what, uh, you know, 100, 110 plates of Bob Evans. I heard the FIU staffer, you know, talk to the players and say, grilled chicken, fried chicken, turkey. So I knew exactly what was on each plate. Um, here's my my only thing, Joe, is am I bougie if I'm saying I'm not eating Bob Evans? Like, I'm not saying it's the worst thing, but man, if I just got, you know, after losing a game 38-0 and it's like, yeah, man, I got Bob Evans, it's like, all right, man, whatever. All right. See, this was gonna be my follow-up question. Was it Bob Evans breakfast or Bob Evans dinner? Now that you've clarified that it was dinner, I don't necessarily blame you for being a little disappointed. <laughs> being from Ohio, which is the birthplace of Bob Evans, that's not really not why know. you go there. You go to Bob Evans, uh, you know, in the morning after a late night for some some good breakfast food, and particularly their baked goods. Their biscuits are are really good, uh, and like their their pies are good. Like I remember growing up on like holidays, you would like order pies from the local Bob Evans, like, you know, weeks in advance for your holiday dinners or whatever. That being said, yeah, they're like lunch dinner food. Not great unless you have the taste buds of like an 85 year old going there for dinner at three o'clock in the afternoon. So I, I don't, I don't blame you in that regard. If it was breakfast, then we might have to fight, but yeah, their dinner, their dinner food's not great. And see, again, we'll transition, but that's the thing. You nailed it, right? There was a Bob Evans right next to my high school. 
And it was nothing but people over the age of 75. Like they ran specials all the time for senior citizens. So I guess in my head, I just feel like I'm not old enough to eat at Bob Evans. But I did not know it, Ohio was the birthplace of Bob Evans. So you are more uh, nuanced in the Bob Evans uh, menu than I am, sir. <laughs> Athens, Ohio. That is that is true. Yeah, it's definitely the spot you go in the suburbs mm-hmm. after a, a LAN party or whatever we did <laughs> late Saturday nights at, at 2002 or however old I am. I can't remember anymore. But... <laughs> Uh, but you know, we'll, we'll move on then to this old dominion game against Louisiana tech monarchs win that one 23 to 20 in Norfolk, um, old dominion continuing kind of a resurgence, Louisiana tech, not really sure how they can get much lower than they are at the moment. Unfortunately, as they win, as they lose rather yet another game by a one score margin have to feel pretty bummed for, uh, what Skip Holtz and his team are dealing with right now. Yeah, so I'm going to focus, and I'm not to take anything away from your point, right? Because I feel like we've talked a lot about Austin Kendall, and he's had some success, but clearly that hasn't translated to wins on, uh, you know, wins on Saturdays. I want to put the majority of my focus in ODU, Joe. I don't know about you, but I'm very impressed at Ricky Ronnie. The way that, if you look at this team, Joe, they have fought all year in a way that you would almost be surprised to know that this is their first conference win in since 2018. Now, of course, they didn't play football in 2020, so you got to take that into account. But still, they didn't get a, a conference win in 2019. Their only win in oh, it, excuse me, their only win in 2019 was over Norfolk State, right? So when you look at the at the losses here, they had that heartbreaking loss to Marshall by seven. They lose to uh, to UTEP by seven. The heartbreaking loss to Buffalo by one in which we talked about the backup quarterback races off the sideline and then the extra point gets pushed back. Joe, they're playing really good football. I mean, the loss to Liberty, that's a Malik Willis deal. Uh, West, excuse me, not West Virginia. Wake Forest was a top 15 team in the nation at that point in time when they played them. So that's the thing that really impresses me. The second part of it, I want to take a look at the ODU running game. Blake Watson is quietly having a really good year. He had 25 carries for 108 yards in that game. And on the season, he's got 114 carries with 551 yards and two touchdowns. I, especially as someone who was really looking at Elijah Lala Davis to be the number one running back on that team. The fact that Blake Watson has stepped in and given them really a good one-two punches, really phenomenal. Especially when you look, Joe, at the fact that if you go back to 2020, the guy everyone was talking about was Ricky Slade the former five-star all-world coming out of high school prospect who started his career at Penn State, they have him transfer out, and then it's almost like, oh, man, you know, the the one guy who we thought was going to be a feature guy for us who played for Ricky Ronnie at Penn State, he's not there. He leaves the program before they even get back on the field. But give credit to Blake Watson for really stepping in and having a nice year. And that defense, again, the fact that they've really performed, in my mind, I want to say better than anyone could have expected when you lose the guys like Keon White, and, and others there, you know, uh, in the <clears throat> excuse me, others in the in the secondary and on that defense. I just have to be really impressed with the way they're able to play football. So uh, I'm wondering if that's your big takeaway because for me, the fact that most people had them, I believe the preseason poll had them at last uh, in the East, and the fact that they've been a competitive two and six, I just think that gives a lot of hope for the future of ODU football. I, I think with Old Dominion, I definitely think they're kind of coming into their own as a team. And you mentioned the running game. Um, one thing that I was a little concerned about going back a couple of weeks was Hayden Wolf 
winning over that starting job from DJ Mack. And you look at the last two games for him, had over 60% completion in both those games, uh, had 67.6% in this game against Louisiana Tech. So he is definitely kind of picking up where he's left off as the starter uh, from a while back. Not the most mobile guy, and given how that, you know, Old Dominion's offensive line is pass blocking right now. You want to see him maybe improve that part of it a little bit. But at the same time, uh, you know, you have to be kind of, you know, happy with the way that he's progressing. He's getting a little bit better each weekend. You know, if if he's still there, which, you know, I don't know why he wouldn't be at this point. He'll be uh, a redshirt sophomore next year, I believe. Then the Venice, Florida native still has a few solid years left to kind of lead this team to hopefully some bigger and better things. Yeah, well, Hayden Wolf was always the more established passer than DJ Mack. I think there was a lot of hope and excitement with DJ because he's a very mobile guy, right? I've talked about him ad nauseum, his history at UCF and, you know, being someone who played in Fiesta Bowl and so on and so forth. But as you mentioned, Joe, he was a redshirt freshman, excuse me, he was a true freshman in 2019, only plays in three games. So he's able to preserve a redshirt year. They don't play football last year. So at least at bare minimum, you know, he gets a chance to, kind of develop into a frame that when you first saw him and I saw his first start when he played against FIU in 2019, he looked to be about maybe 195 or 200 pounds. I'm going to assume he's maybe 15, 20 pounds bigger than that. And a guy was already 6'4", 6'5". And as you mentioned, if he gets to start the rest of this, you really have him as entrenched as your starter heading into next year. You've got to firmly establish two, possibly three years of a starter there in Hayden Wolf. So that's definitely hope for the future. And someone who, as he grows in Ricky Ronnie's system, he may have time to really kind of, again, maybe not be as athletic as DJ Mack. I don't think he'll ever be that guy, but he can find his footing in terms of maybe doing more of the things athletically that would be asked of him in that offense. Yeah. If he can grow a little bit as an athlete, like you said, he's six, five, he's 219 pounds. That's exactly what you want, you know, in like a pro type scheme. So if, if old Dominion can, you know, get him to develop a little bit more in the off season, then I think we're going to have a, you know, a different tune when we talk about old dominion football in 2022 here, but you know, we'll see. And now it's hitting me that old, that 2022 rather is like less than eight weeks away. And now I'm sad again. Thanks Eric. But, <laughs> uh, all right. for, <laughs> just kidding. Buddy. Uh, MTSU beat Southern Miss 35 to 10. Uh, nothing too crazy to talk about in this game. Uh, however, five turnovers forced and two touchdowns for MTSU's defense in this one. Um, also worth noting, Chase Cunningham left the game early with an undisclosed lower body injury here. As of Tuesday, no further word on him just yet. But now at four and four, you have to hope it's not too serious because MTSU can still get to bowl eligibility and they're still in contention for the CUSA East crown as are uh, several other teams, as we talked about earlier in the show. Yeah. As you mentioned, not too much of note from this game, but the big thing that you just touched on was the quarterback situation. I talked about this. I think after Bailey Hockman chose to leave the team, Chase Cunningham is a guy who's been with the program for a while and, you know, they kind of know he's, he's played, got some starting experience, I believe last year, or maybe it wasn't starting experience, but I know he, played in uh, relief of Asher O'Hara last year. But behind him is Mike DeLeo, who played at Florida Tech. And I'm familiar with Florida Tech because they were a former NAIA, either NAIA or Division II. I got to go back and look at that on the fly here. But essentially, you know, not someone who got a FBS or even an FCS offer coming out of high school. So that's something you got to keep an eye on. As you mentioned, they certainly have an opportunity throughout the rest of this season. I I just think when you look at their schedule, 
there's no way in my mind that they're going to be able to compete for a CUCH title. Now, that could come back and bite me in the butt, right? They could go on some run, and we'll be talking about this in a few weeks, and like I told you so. But I just don't see them beating Western or beating FAU. I think they have a definitely a fair shot of beating FIU and ODU. Again, we talked about how tough they've played. That's a 50-50 game, and that'll get them to six. But I just don't know if they're going to really be able to compete for the conference East, East title. But as I mentioned, Mike DeLeo, you know, coming out of Pembroke Pines in Cooper City down there in South Florida, didn't really have much of an opportunity. Again, played at Florida Tech and coming out of high school, someone who really only threw for 1,400 yards. Now, the positive, the positive, Joe, he's a dual threat guy. He, he rushed for 672 yards at Florida Tech in his one season and ran for almost 1,000 yards during a senior year, right? So you're at least getting someone who fits that Chase Cunningham, Asher O'Hara mold of a guy who can make plays with his legs. And seemingly that's going to be the recipe for success for Western. But again, we'll see. This is going to be the biggest stage he's played on. I know we've talked about this aspect of MTSU a lot, but the fact that Rick Stock still wanted to shift away from a system that would highlight the strengths of a dual threat quarterback when you, you know, you had Asher O'Hara, obviously, and then you had Chase Cunningham, who, despite what a lot of people say, definitely has some skip, uh, similar attributes. And then Mike DeLeo, like you mentioned, also a very uh, effective dual threat guy when given the right set of circumstances. So that's just, that's odd to me. You, you look at his performance in this game against Southern Miss, 8 of 12 through the air for 78 yards, and then on the ground, 11 carries for 77 yards, averaged uh, 7 yards a carry, uh, including one 43-yard run, and scored two touchdowns with his legs. So, you know, it's it's more the same in terms of the type of quarterback they're playing with, and you know, it's it's not clearly, like you mentioned, with the uh, remaining games on their schedule, may not get them to a conference championship, but definitely going to win them some games. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I think they get the six. I just don't think there's any more. And again, Joe, I don't have off the top of my head here. I want to say they were picked to finish fifth in CUSA because the way that the conference stands right now is actually the order, um, projected order of finish in the preseason poll. So I want to say they were picked to finish fifth, but I don't think very many people had MTSU bowling. So even if they get the six, that's a successful season in my mind. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and then to wrap up the recap of last week, we have FAU beating UTEP 28 to 25. This game delivered the way we were hoping that it would in terms of entertainment value. FAU now up to 12 wins at home in a row. Uh, UTEP, made it uh you said made it a, a bit of a comeback to make this a one score game with about two minutes left uh but ultimately didn't pan out FAU's defense uh held strong when it needed to interesting quote from Willie Taggart at the end here Eric quote one of the signs of a good football team is you find a way to win ball games even when you don't play well I didn't think we played well tonight I thought we played undisciplined just very disappointed in our football team Discipline caused a lot of the things that happened that could have very well put us in control of that game, and we got out-disciplined. Well, yeah. I mean, to Willie Taggart's point, they had nine penalties for 84 yards. The only thing that got them is the fact that UTEP had 13 for 97, and that's really disappointing to see because that's kind of carrying over from last year when they were a very penalized team, one of the most penalized teams in CUSA. But I can't disagree with him, and this is why FAU fans are frustrated. When you look at the numbers, Nikosi Perry, 13 of 26 for 149, very pedestrian. Now, he doesn't turn the football over, and that helps. Johnny Ford, 13 for 93, that's good, doesn't necessarily crack 100, but 
as a whole, the run game, 37 carries for a buck 30. You get seven carries for 10 yards from James Charles, two for six for Larry McCammon. That, in my mind, as someone who has a fair amount of knowledge of this FAU backfield, I guess it's just surprising. Not that Johnny Ford is the number one back. He's a very talented guy. You know, he had a really good freshman year at USF. But you would have thought that there would have been more depth there, and they're not really able to establish that. Malcolm Davidson seemingly is in the witness protection program. Uh, I remember Willie Taggart saying a quote last year that Malcolm Davidson had to, you know, he was kind of lurking in the background. It's like, come on up here, big guy. You got to let us know you're here so we can give you some carries. I, I think that was Coach Taggart being a little bit cheeky because clearly Malcolm Davidson's kind of fallen in some sort of doghouse where he, he went from being a guy in 2019 who looked like he may have been one of the better running backs in CUSA and now is barely seeing the field. But, yeah, I mean, I, you look at the way this game played out, and even, as you mentioned, UTEP gets that run there where they're trying to make the game close and get that little run there at the end of the game, scoring the game's final uh, 14 points, final 15 points to make it closer than maybe it really was. Yeah, that is a product of being undisciplined. Now, the flip side, and again, I just don't know if it's how many times they can afford to play this game, especially this week against Marshall. You can't keep playing, you know, two and a half quarters of good football or a quarter and a half of good football and think eventually it's not going to bite you in the behind because this team is way too talented. There's no reason when you look at the final four games, if they get past Marshall, they got ODU, middle, and they had two Western Kentucky. The Marshall and Western Kentucky games are going to make their year. And I don't think, quite frankly, Joe, they're going to win either of those games playing the way they played last week or last Saturday, excuse me. No, that's a fair takeaway. I think when you when you point out, you know, how this kind of compares with FAU's past performances in terms of penalties, then I can see where Willie Taggart's coming from in that regard. Uh, any takeaways based on UTEP's performance and the way that they were able to uh, come back and make this close, but just not really execute the way that they needed to at the end here? I, the reason I hesitate, Joe, is because I listen. I think the line coming to this game was something like eleven or twelve. I didn't think it was ever going to be that big of a of a gap. I thought UTEP. I thought the game would have been closer throughout the contest. So the final score we saw is kind of what I anticipated. But nevertheless, I'm not bullish on UTEP. The, the six and two, I'm giving them credit for winning the games that they have. But. I looked at this, Joe, as a game that would really kind of give you an indicator as to where, as to where they are as a program, but whether they were for real or not, right? And I, I'm, I hate saying that because it feels like I'm, you know, kind of chipping away at the fact that they're six and two because you look at the, the past how many years, what, in the past four years that they've even won six games? I'm forgetting, you know, how many years got to go back from to eclipse that, that mark. I think it's four years. So I don't want to chip away at that, right? But I still looked in my mind, Joe, I guess the easy way to sum it up is when you look at the rest of their schedule coming into this week or coming into last week, FAU, UTSA, UAB, UNT, Rice. I looked at FAU, UTSA, and UAB as clearly a notch above them, despite the fact that they were six and two entering, they are six and one entering the game. So I guess in that sense, I, I, I'm not too shocked at the result, if that makes sense. It does make sense. You know, I, I don't want to take away too much from what UTEP was able to do in this game. Uh, after all, uh, Gavin Hardison, career high, 321 yards in this game. Uh, also had a, a really solid rushing day for the Miners, and, and in particular, uh, Ronald Awat. A fantastic day for both those guys, and against an FAU defense that has been solid all year. You look at what they uh, were able to give up in the passing game in particular, 167 yards just over that per game. And uh, Gavin Hardison comes in and plays the way he does for 321 yards. So 
definitely a program on the rise. Hopefully they can continue that because they have a big contest against UTSA coming up this weekend that could make things very interesting in CUSA West. The college football playoff rankings got released while we were recording, and Cincinnati is sixth. That really pisses me off. Anyway. (laughs) Georgia, Bama, Michigan State, Oregon, Ohio State, Cincinnati. Come on, man. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Should at least be four. Definitely put put them in over... Oregon and Ohio State. All right, to jump into the middle section, uh, let's start with some good news uh, for Conference USA and for in particular for UTSA. Jeff Trailer was a lot of talk about him potentially going to Texas Tech after uh, Matt Wells was fired there. Uh, however, UTSA coming through and showing him the money, uh, 10-year contract extension with an average of $2.8 million per year. Uh, so definitely have to be happy about that if you're a Roadrunner fan. Definitely happy about continuing the momentum that Trailer has uh, built up for this program over the last few years. And you know it, it's hard to imagine what they really would have done and how uh, you know sharp that you know turnaround and getting a new coach to replicate what he's done would have to be, especially when you consider what's on the horizon for that UTSA program. But you know, I've mentioned before my own experiences in college athletics, and I've seen a lot of, you know, college athletic departments, unfortunately, kind of downplay the importance of, you know, really good leaders when it comes to, uh, you know, their sports and, and what kind of drives interest in their athletic departments. And honestly, I'm happy that Lisa Campos has been able to recognize the importance that Jeff Trailer has brought to her department and been able to lock him up for another decade here. Yeah, Joe, I kind of wrote about this in our three things you learn about Conference USA column. Very well, you know what? Before I, I give my thoughts, I, I should ask you this. I should have led with this first. Were you surprised at the fact that they got an extension? A, and then B, the length of it. And, and, and maybe C, I'll throw another thing, the financial figures. I, I want to get your thoughts on that. The only thing that really surprised me was the length. Um, as we <laughs> have seen many times, uh, you know, getting colleges to commit to a coach for more than five years is uh, rare. And, you know, even then considering the nature of the business, there's no telling what happens in five years and whether or not (laughs) the two sides kind of feel differently about each other, because that's just what happens Uh, in terms of the fact that they got it done. I wasn't surprised there simply because uh, look, it's what UTSA is doing and how quickly they've done it is historic. And I really don't see how they would have, you know, really rebounded as well as they would have liked if a wrench had gotten thrown in it at this particular point in time when the team is a top 20 team in the nation, uh, undefeated, uh, you know, has the potential to maybe even crack the top 10 before the end of the year. We'll see. So I'm not surprised that it was as high a priority as it was for them, especially considering like the immediacy that Texas Tech appears to be treating this. In terms of the money, <laughs> based on what I know about UTSA fans, it doesn't seem like raising capital to fund the athletic department is really that big of an issue for them. Obviously, people are <laughs> free to, to tell me I'm wrong. But A, considering how passionate those fans are about making sure that their athletic department is in a place to succeed and B, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of UTSA alumni and folks who appear to be doing pretty well for themselves. So I can definitely see how they would have the money 
uh, tucked away somewhere to make something like this happen. But um, yeah, a 10 year commitment for either side. It, great, but we'll see what happens in five years. <laughs> okay. And listen, I, I can't be mad at you for that take, right? I was a little surprised at the extension. That's not to say that UTSA clearly isn't capable of raising the money, right? Whether that's through the university themselves or donors or et cetera, right? But I guess my point, and to kind of piggyback off what I said last week, was that if you're Jeff Trailer and you look at your career trajectory, how many more bites at the apple are you going to get at a P5 job? Now, listen, there is something to be said, A, about loyalty, which he clearly showed being at Gilmer High School. I, I can't remember the exact year, um, how many years it was. I want to say it was something like 17 or 18. There's a level of loyalty that he clearly you know, it, it exhibits. And also, just maybe, he could be just happy <laughs> at UTSA, right? Which I think we place so much emphasis on the next best thing or going to the next job or whatever that may be. And Jeff Trailer may say, hey, I want to build this thing out at UTSA, whether that's the entire 10 years, who knows? But that could be another five years. And maybe he looks at himself at 58, 59 and says, I can still get a, a P5 job if things go as I foresee them, right? And Joe, in my mind, I kind of have to find that honorable and respect that because listen, I'm not going to tell anyone to turn down life-changing money for your family and your kids' families and your kids' kids' families when you got the opportunity. But I think there's something to be said. And listen, that's not to say that $28 million can't be life-changing money. I want to you know, make sure that's clear. But I think there's something to be said about saying, hey, if I believe I'm as good of a coach as you know, one that would earn a, a P5 opportunity, let me keep doing what I'm doing here. That opportunity isn't going to go away. And if it comes down the road five years from now, I'll take it as opposed to that feeling of you got to strike when the iron's hot because you never know that opportunity will come again, if that makes sense. It's an interesting thought with Jeff Trailer. Let, let's take a look at who this guy is for a second. Not only did he coach high school ball uh, in Texas for 14 years, he coached at the same high school in Texas for 14 years. So clearly loyalty is a big part of who he is. And listen, well, I'll, I'll give it up to the man. He looks great for 53 years old, but Jeff Trailer is 53 years old. So not to say that, you know, age defines the type of coach you'll be. I'm just saying this is a guy who I think has enough life experience to not have ambition blinders. I think the way a lot of coaches in their thirties and forties maybe have, I think he maybe, you know, looked at, a, what he's built at UTSA and the lifestyle that he's built for himself and his family and realized, you know, how often do you kind of find that balance where, you know, you have the ability to really build something and do it in an environment where, again, clearly you're you're happy and you are close to something, you know, that you know and that your family knows with, you know, Gilmer not being uh, terribly far from from UTSA or from the San Antonio area in general. It's not close, but it's not that far either. Certainly closer than Lubbock, Texas is. <clears throat> All that to say, I think there is something to be said about the fact that, you know, <laughs> $2.8 million contract, $2.8 million a year contract or not, uh, I think there's something to be said about the fact that Trailer looked at his circumstances at UTSA, looked at his probable circumstances at Texas Tech and realized, A, I'm happy where I am. I think the the pressure of a P5 job at this point in my life is not really worth dealing with. 
not to say he he wouldn't be successful, but it just seems like, you know, why gamble on the grass being greener on the other side when the grass is playing green right here? Yeah, I mean, listen, those are all fair points on, on your end. I mean, I just think why why gamble, right, is one thing. And again, I'm not, you know, trying to down that point. I just think in my mind, and maybe it just resonates with me in this sense, I think it shows a level of confidence in that, hey, I don't have to like, oh man, there's a P5 job. All right, better take it now because uh, I may not get another opportunity. It's, if you're confident in yourself as a, as a head coach, that opportunity will come. So, um, you know, I, I, listen, I think at the end of the day, and, you know, maybe we'll we'll transition this for our friends over at the American podcast. The fact that Lisa Compost is locked up for another four years and Jeff Trader is locked up for another 10, they have the chance to really, um, you know, their ceiling what Michael Jordan say? The ceiling is the roof. <laughs> well, uh, I think that can be applied here as for them as they enter the American. The ceiling is the roof. Uh, okay. Okay. You didn't, you didn't hear that one, uh, Joe? Uh, I mean, I probably have. To be honest, I read a whole excerpt today from Scottie Pippen's book about. Uh, it, it, it depressed me. That that's depressed me, Joe. Don't don't bring that up. That's depressing. <laughs> like Mike and Scottie, uh, that's depressing. Yeah. I'm- <laughs> I mean, that's, it's a whole thing. And we, you know, we don't have to get into it, but it's kind of weird how much we've talked about Scottie Pippen on a G5 football podcast for someone who doesn't play football and didn't play at a G5 school. We have talked a lot about Scottie Pippen on this podcast. So yeah, we'll leave it at that. (laughs) Uh, All right. Uh, Next on the uh, conference realignment news front, Western Kentucky and Middle Tennessee State look to be headed to the Mac most likely uh, no official decision yet um, that comes straight out of Western Kentucky and uh, tweeted by our friend Jared McDonald. Uh, but this move has been reported by Brett McMurphy of action network, who has been on the money with all of his reporting regarding the uh, CUSA and Sunbelt related realignment news so far. So based on that evidence, you have to think something's coming in the next eh, couple of weeks uh, or so in regards to uh, Western Kentucky and Middle Tennessee's movement. Personally, I think this works out great for them. I'm interested to see what happens here, especially on the basketball front. But on the football side, especially, I just think this opens up a lot of opportunities for both programs. For Western in particular, um, there's already a decent you know, alumni base in those MAC territories already. And you know, for for Middle Tennessee, with really both of these schools being so close to Nashville, I think this is going to open up some really interesting opportunities for that conference. Uh, and I'm obviously sad to see them leave COSA, as it appears they're doing, but probably best case scenario for both those schools. Listen, for both of those schools, when you look at the <laughs> level of uncertainty, and that's putting it nicely, that Conference USA is in right now, of course, we'll talk about some of the schools they're potentially looking at picking up. You got to do what's best for them, right? So we'll see if it does play out. I, I think you and I both are pretty much expecting that they will at some point in time within the next week or so. Seemingly how this thing has worked out is we've recorded a podcast and then eight hours later, more schools leave. So uh, yeah, I think we're expecting that they'll be joining the Mac and we'll see how that goes. I'll just say this. You talk about the opportunity to get Nashville and I kind of made this point, I think a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember if it was this podcast or somewhere else. You can look at that way as you want to. And I'm not downing the Mac for doing so, but if you look at Western Kentucky and Bowling and, and um, Middle Tennessee as getting Nashville, may that's the case 30 years from now when the Nashville suburbs roll over into 
Murfreesboro and Bowling Green. Well, I guess you can say they're in Murfreesboro now, but when it rolls over into Bowling Green, but right now, as someone who's made the trip from Nashville to Bowling Green, ain't Nashville, right? And that's not going to be there for at least another two, three decades. So we'll see how that plays out. But sure, um, if you want to look at it that way from the Mac, you're fine. I guess the only thing I'm curious about is the Mac didn't really necessarily need to expand. This just kind of seemed like, hey, everyone's leaving CUSA. Okay, we'll take them. Um, but I can't fault either Middle Tennessee or Western for choosing to jump. Right. And I mean, I'm not saying that Middle Tennessee and Western Kentucky are going to win them in the Nashville market. I'm more saying for both these schools being in a position where they're going to play all these schools from Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, uh, and, and Buffalo and Michigan, really. I don't know. Just having grown up in those areas, it's interesting to see how much uh, kids entering college from those areas really want to go to college someplace close to somewhere like Nashville. So I think just getting to see teams from that area compete against, you know, teams like Ohio, Toledo, Bowling Green State, Miami, uh, Ball State, et cetera, on a regular basis. I think that's only going to, you know, help to deepen that seed in their minds. And really, I think it's going to, if anything, I think it's just going to help Western Kentucky and Middle Tennessee get more money from these, these Northern markets of, you know, kids who ultimately end up wanting to go to school in that area. Uh, but <laughs> It's it's just it is going to be fun to see how they you know how this translates to athletic success for them because as it's been noted you know several times both these schools have had some really good success all around uh, in you know men's basketball women's basketball uh, football you know baseball track and field etc volleyball so it, it's I think it's just it's a really winning play for Kentucky for Western Kentucky and MTSU in general I'm like you said the Mac didn't need to make this move. The Mac was doing pretty well on its own. So, but I do think they, they see this as kind of a longer term investment, like you said. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can't add much more than that. Cause I think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of the long-term emphasis on long term investment. So with all these schools leaving CUSA, basically we are left with FIU, Louisiana tech and UTEP in conference USA, but wait, <laughs> Some probable CUSA additions were announced this week with the Liberty Flames, New Mexico State, and then out of the FCS, Sam Houston State and Jacksonville State. So that would bring them to seven teams, and they would need one more to be, uh, you know, a full-fledged conference. And we talked a lot previously about the possibility of Liberty joining CUSA seems like that's going to come to fruition. Um, I think that's great for conference USA. I don't think Liberty needed to make that move, but um, based on the uh, recent success of that football program, I think it's a great move for them. Mexico state, you know, I think regionally it, it makes sense sort of. Um, but I think, you know, I think New Mexico state, I think it makes less sense for them as a whole just because, A, they already kind of have the ties to the WAC, and they've been very successful in the WAC in most sports. Sam Houston State, defending FCS champs, can't be too mad at that. And Jacksonville State, another program on the rise. Uh, haven't uh, haven't won uh, an FCS championship before, but uh, have you know made some headlines in the last couple of years with uh, some playoff berths. And, of course, they beat Florida State this year, which was huge. So, I mean, A, I think that's 
great for both Sam Houston State and Jacksonville State. And I'm curious to see who this third team is going to be. I, I don't know who it would be out of the FBS, so it most it makes more sense for it to be an FCS team. But curious to see who that last member of the new Conference USA is going to be. Joe, before I opine, I do want to get your thoughts on, on one thing, because I know it's been a thought of mine. <sighs> Emphasis on USA. <laughs> any, any thoughts, feelings, or otherwise about, I mean, A, some of these schools, you know, may join as, uh, some of these some of these schools will join as all sports members, and some may join as football only. But any thoughts on just the regional makeup of this potential league, or I guess lack thereof regional makeup? Listen, from the standpoint of the athletic departments, I can see why it is a tough spot to be in. Obviously, it costs a lot of money to travel and to go from to you know to send teams from um, Las Cruces, New Mexico, to Miami, Florida, on a regular basis not going to be the cheapest thing in the world. So from their standpoint, I get it from a fan standpoint, marketing standpoint. I'm not super concerned about it. I mean, you go back to the whack like 10 years ago and you know, that, that conference stretched from Honolulu to, to Ruston. And so huge geographical makeup there. And I think we still got, some really entertaining football out of that. So, you know, hopefully from that standpoint, that justifies some of the other sacrifices being made. But, you know, it's it's tough. It's tough to say how it's going to, you know, translate at this point with, you know, the world being such a changing place. Yeah, I mean, listen, I guess I'm just thinking, maybe I am thinking of it as someone who just made the trip to Huntington, which there are very few direct flights into Huntington Tri-State airport um they only do about four flights a day so and that's not hyperbole so um i know you know getting to lynchburg is not the easiest place sam houston ironically enough it's an hour outside of houston so i mean that's not too bad new mexico state actually is fairly close to el paso uh so that's not too bad as well jacksonville state that may be one that uh could be a little bit challenging but nevertheless i mean i guess if you are conference usa you gotta do what you gotta do right I, I I'll say this and I don't want to derail this podcast, right? I I um listen, I, I don't think there's any way you can talk about taking liberty without talking about some of the things that come with liberty. And I, I won't dive too far into them. I just would ask anyone to Google Liberty University and their handling of sexual assault. The only reason I say this, and again, I'm not trying to hop on, you know, some high horse, but put you this way, Joe, as two people who, you know work in, in, you know, broad forms of communications and, and have been around, you know, also work in sports for a long time as well. It's not 10 years ago. It's not five years ago when the way, you know, you kind of treat these things. So perception is reality. And that's something that uh, conference USA have to consider as they make this move and in terms of speaking it strictly in terms of having any semblance of a conference. I guess you have to do what you have to do. If you're CUSA, maybe you're kicking yourself. You didn't make this move four years ago when Liberty was ready to pony up some money to join a conference, right? Uh, we'll see how the rest of it plays out. But for now, I guess it's in terms of keeping a, a conference together. That is of paramount importance for the people you know, in, in headquarters. And again, I'm not slandering anyone for making the decision that they have to do, right? Because I'm of the belief that I want CUSA to exist in some form or fashion. I don't want to see this league go away. So I'm not bashing them any form or, or, or you know, one way or another. I just think 
with the Liberty situation, that's something you have to think about. And then, of course, with the other schools, uh, it may be a little bit harder to get to some of the the other programs, mainly Jacksonville State and, and Liberty and Lynchburg. But all in all, we'll see how the rest of it plays out and who they're able to add potentially maybe as football only um, schools going forward. Yeah, Eric, and I don't have too much to add with uh, your your sentiments so far, um, and and what you said there regarding Liberty. Um, I will say I don't envy the position that Conference USA is in right now, both in terms of you know financial instability. Obviously, I think this is a move that they they needed to make in order to help the conference survive, like you said. And yeah, <laughs> Liberty is is no stranger to situations that are. Um, I mean, appalling, I'll just say it. And that, like you said, there's been several just in the last two years. So I, I don't envy COSA for being in a position where <laughs> odds are something like that is going to happen again, given how that university has chosen to treat some of these things. But um, again, from a financial standpoint, I, I understand why Conference USA made this decision that they did. Um, and in that vein too, it's interesting to me that um, UMass wasn't part of this announcement so far. Obviously, there's still time, and they need one more member. But uh, I mean, I think that just kind of shows you the the shape that UMass's athletic department is in, and some of the missteps that they've shown, and that they <laughs> clearly seem to be not a very appealing uh, thought for a conference that's on life support themselves. So I'm I'm curious to see if something does end up happening with UMass down the road, because again, there's still time. Uh, there's still time to potentially make UConn a football-only member, which we heard some rumblings about uh, a couple of weeks ago from a report from uh, Chris Vanini and The Athletic that hasn't really come through yet, but maybe it will. I don't know. It's it's a situation that we only see you know a couple of times every, every decade or so uh, in college football, it would seem. It's interesting. With travel, one more thing. Like It's crazy how what colleges will make work for the sake of playing the best possible competition. I mean, let's let's take hockey, for example. I believe it was the CCHA less than five, six years ago. This is That was a league where you had Bowling Green State and the University of Alaska ice hockey teams playing each other with regularity and flying to each other on a regular basis. So <laughs> never underestimate the type of cash that college athletic departments will spend on travel in order to have their athletes play the best possible competition. No, listen, the, I was just going to make a quick point about UMass, but I think that point, last point you made is especially rings true because when it, if it comes time to ship the student athletes where you got to ship them to, they'll find a way to get them there, right? So that's a fair point. So with that, then we'll jump into previews for uh, this coming week, week 10 in Conference USA competition. UAB hosting Louisiana Tech, noon Eastern, CBS Sportsnet, UAB minus 13 and a half heading into this game. Personally, I'm feeling pretty safe picking UAB here. Uh, they've had a bye week to get things figured out after losing to Rice two weeks ago. If there is a more deflated program in college football than Louisiana Tech right now, well, actually, it's probably FIU. <laughs> but at any rate, I'm not sure what Tech realistically has left in their tank if they're looking to get a win against a UAB team that has to feel pretty mad at themselves after their last performance. I'll keep this one short and sweet. I saw where you were going with that analogy, and I was going to say, there's FIU. Outside of that, give me UAB. I, as you mentioned, I think they are looking to bounce back, and Louisiana Tech right now just having a rare down year under Skip Holtz. No need to, no reason to think that they won't bounce back you know, next year, but it's, it's not happening for them this year. 
No, it is not. Uh, and then we have Southern Miss hosting North Texas at 3 p.m. Eastern on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, mean Green minus four and a half. I think North Texas wins this one. Uh, the defense is showing some decent improvement in the last couple of weeks. I think they beat Southern Miss by more than a touchdown here. Uh, that team obviously still dealing with a lot of injuries, still dealing with a lot of, uh, you know, just underperformance in a lot of regards. But bottom line, I think North Texas is a more talented football team, regardless of how they've actually performed the last couple of weeks. So I think they have the advantage. It's their game to lose. Based on the sound that came from your end of the podcast, right after I finished that last point, you're either doing this podcast in a bathtub holding a rubber ducky, or that was your dog who chomped down on a toy. I will let the listeners, you know, use their imagination as to which one they want it to be. As to the game on the field with North Texas and Southern Miss, here's the deal. In my mind, I just think that North Texas, while they haven't been able to stop anybody, they at least have found ways to win games. Whereas with Southern Miss, they are really struggling right now and their quarterback situation is really in flux. I think this is going to be just that adjustment year under Will Hall where all things are kind of selling into place and we'll kind of see how they can fare next year. But I, I don't think that Southern Miss is going to pull off the upset. So give me North Texas. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still laughing at that comment. Yeah. As everyone knows, I do this, uh, I do this podcast in a, in a full bubble loaded bathtub in my mother's basement with my laptop floating <laughs> around on a little boat. <laughs> yeah that's i will leave it to the listener joe to decide which one i'll leave it to the listeners that's all <laughs> no you're right it was i was in a bathtub uh drinking Thank champagne you. and eating uh wendy's sponsor me wendy's okay. but anyway <laughs> um let's let's jump into uh western kentucky and middle tennessee state then uh 3 30 p.m eastern on stadium western kentucky minus 15 I'm taking WKU, uh, especially if we don't see Chase Cunningham return. Uh, no news on that front. A lot of time before that game as a recording. Uh, but simply put, this WKU offense is just a bit better than the last couple of offenses that MTSU has faced. So I think the Tops win this one by at least two scores. Yeah, with Middle Tennessee struggles to run the football, specifically from the running backs, it's going to be hard to keep West Kentucky off of the field. Also, if this is Mike DeLeo's first start, definitely a tough ask for a kid who's making his way from Division II Florida Tech. And he's been in Middle Tennessee for a couple of years now, but for his first start to be against Bailey Zappi, he's one of the top five quarterbacks in all the nation. So give me the tops. Then we have uh, Charlotte hosting Rice, also at 3.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN+. 49ers minus six heading into this game. Uh, look, I mean, Rice has kind of shown a propensity to make you respect the run at least. Charlotte obviously has had issues defending the run all year. Um, it's it's tough for me to make this call because I think if Chris Reynolds wins this game, or rather, if Chris Reynolds is back by the time this game kicks off, then I think Charlotte wins this one no problem. That being said, if we have another week of James Foster, then I think this is going to be a little bit closer and might just fall into that one-score region like uh, Vegas seems to be predicting here. Um and like we've talked about before, Jake Constantine can throw the deep ball. So I'm going to pick Charlotte, but I think if we don't get Chris Reynolds, then this is going to be <laughs> a more entertaining game than it should be with two teams that are, you know, kind of having a little bit of an identity crisis right now, it would seem. Yeah, maybe I'm a little bit higher on Charlotte than you may be, even if James Foster starts this game. I, I, the feeling for me, Joe, is when you just talk about as a program, I think Charlotte's a little bit further along in terms of a knowing how to win ball games. You're talking about a team that made a bowl game in 2019 
And I just think talent-wise as well, they're a little bit further along. That's, and that's not to say that they aren't having their struggles spe- specifically and especially against the run. But I think when you have Vic Tucker and Grant DuBose, you'll find a way to make enough plays. So regardless of whether James Foster starts this game or not, give me the Niners. This next one's a big one. We have FAU hosting Marshall, 6 o'clock Eastern on Stadium. Marshall minus one and a half. We talked a lot earlier about Marshall having the worst run defense in the league so far. Uh, And FAU's uh, run offense, one of the better ones in the league, 17 touchdowns to the ground so far, 167.6 yards on the ground so far. And (laughs) really, like, when you look at FAU's rushing offense compared to Marshall's rushing offense, Marshall's only gained one more yard on the ground and only averaging point, uh, 0.2 more yards per game on the ground. But Marshall has scored 10 more touchdowns in that regard. And we talked a lot about you know how lethal Rasheen Ali is in that regard. But back to the point about Marshall's run defense, if FAU cleans up the penalties, if that pass defense can keep Grant Wells in check, and I think they win this game. But they have to hold off that really lethal defensive line that Marshall has. And we'll see. Because I have to pick somebody, I'm going to pick FAU. But I think this is going to be a really good game. Listen, I think this is going to be the ball game of the weekend. And that's including UTSA and UTEP, which I know there was some hope of A, college game day being there. And, of course, they're on ESPN too. But, no, I think this is going to be the premier ball game. Joe, anytime these two teams get together, there's a rivalry. There's a lot of trash talking between both fan bases, and you know it's going to be a closed ball game. So I am very torn on this one. I had a chance to see Grant Wells live. The thing that took me by Joe, he's very athletic. Even talking to some of the Marshall beat writers, specifically my guy Grant Trailer, I got to shout out Grant, the best guys out there in the CUSA slash Sunbelt space. A uh, few soon to be Sunbelt space. Got to shout out Grant there. Grant Wells, he's a 4'6 guy. And I know you don't think about that, right? You think of him with the passing success he had last year in the early part of the year and the fact that he kind of, you know, just for lack of a better phrase, this kind of reminds you of someone who is a more of a traditional pocket passer, but he's very athletic. And I think his ability to use his legs and extend plays is going to be key, especially with Zion Gilbert, who was recognized as potential senior bowl invitee this year. Zion is one of the better cornerbacks in CUSA, but you know for a fact that it, teams are either going to throw at him or they're not, right? I know that sounds like I'm being academic, but when you look at last week for FAU, I think Smoke Mungin, Romaine Smoke Mungin, uh, kid out of Tampa, Florida. So I'm obviously biased uh, for Smoke Mungin. But Joe, I think he was targeted 15 times, whereas Zion Gilbert, I think, was targeted only four or five times. So you know for Marshall, when you're trying to get guys like Corey Gamage and Willie Johnson involved, it's almost pick your poison. And you see who you're going to go at, whether it's Smoke Mungin, uh, with Deshaun Moss is no longer starting, or if it's going to be Zion Gilbert. I, I know I said a lot there. I said a mouthful, so I got to make a pick here, and that's probably me stalling to do so, but I'm going to take FAU. I think at the end of the day, they're the more talented team, but we'll see. Coach Huff talks about Herd Tough, and his guys, uh, Rasheen Ali, a very strong running back, and they just with him alone, more than capable if you catch FAU on a bad day where they don't start quick. Marshall can win this game, but I'm going to take the Owls. Is uh, Grant Trailer any relation to Jeff Trailer? Have you asked him that yet? <laughs> Listen, I, shout out again. Shout out to Grant, the fine folks at Huntington, very hospitable. And that starts with Grant, but I have not asked him if there's any relation to Jeff Trailer. So I'll have to follow <laughs> up with that one. 
Uh, fair enough. And then we have FIU hosting Old Dominion this week, uh, 7 o'clock Eastern on ESPN3. Uh, Monarchs minus 2.5 heading into this game. Uh, personally, I'm going to take Old Dominion. I, I really like what they've been able to do the last few weeks. Uh, I think Hayden Wolf's coming into his own. Um, I think that defense has to grow up a little bit. But based on what I've seen out of FIU all season, uh, you know, it, it's really hard to convince me that they are going to win another football game by year's end. So give me the Monarchs here. Yeah, Joe, just very shocking. Or, or I shouldn't say very shocking, but I, I wouldn't have called this team to be facing the possibility of 1-11. and 11. I, I, My head says I should pick ODU, but I just think, especially, Joe, for a, a team, it's just, again, it's just I'll make this quick, but the Dames twins, Kevin Oliver, Jamal Gates, they have guys who've played in multiple bowl games, not just had four or five wins, but multiple bowl games. It's just hard for me, and maybe this is, you know, the fact that I've covered them for their entire career, four years. Um, I, I just think they, as a matter of pride, they have one last stand in them, and I don't think it's going to be the North Texas game. So uh, I'm going to pick FIU here. And rounding out the slate on ESPN2, we have UTEP hosting number 16 UTSA at 10.15 Eastern. A little bit of a late one for the uh, folks on the Eastern Seaboard. Uh, UTSA minus 11 heading into this one on national TV. Uh, look, I, it's, I, I can't pick against UTSA here. They have been the most complete team in the league so far. UTEP, while it's been uh, really fun to watch what they've been able to do in terms of improvement so far. I, I think, you know, I think it'll be a little bit closer game than people think, given the fact that, you know, where UTEP's come from and the fact that UTSA is ranked as high as they are, uh, which I don't know. I think UTSA is just one of those teams that if you, you know, give them an inch, they'll take a yard. So I can imagine them kind of scoring a lot at the end in order to justify how high they're ranked. But I think for most of this game, UTEP is going to put up a, a big fight here. But give me the Roadrunners. Yeah, yeah, okay. First thing, I thought you were going to take UTEP. Um, I think UTSA just has too much to lose. And in specificity, Joe, they're going to be really just fired up and spurred by the fact that their coach is in place in San Antonio. You saw the reaction there, the the video when Lisa Campos announced that Jeff Trello was staying I think they'll be fired up and ready to go, and I don't think they're going to be stopped. So give me the road run. Knowing how things have gone by the time uh, this podcast goes up, who knows uh, if we'll get another crazy news break in the saga of uh, Conference USA's, uh, you know, um, the rumors of their death being greatly exaggerated, but uh, we'll see how they're able to uh, rebound with the addition of some more schools. And uh, we'll be here to talk about it next week. If you want to follow us on Twitter at underdog dynasty at Eric C Henry underscore and at Joe, uh, what the hell is my Twitter handle again? Oh yeah. Uh, J O E H I O underscore. And uh, of course, underdog dynasty.com uh, for more uh, talk and news on the whole of the G five conference realignment front. And Hey, we might even talk about what's going on on the field as well. If uh, the news cycle will let us happy football watching everybody stay safe out there.